0: This is our scripture this morning, John 19. I've tried not to view the dramatic presentation beforehand so that I can feel the effect, and it's almost like it's too much. That words are inadequate to say after witnessing that. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for those wonderful songs that lead us to the cross. And thank you for this scripture this morning that's so powerful, so moving, that reminds us how loving you are to us. That you would have a mission to come to this world and never quit, never any point along the way stop. But you would come to the place where you could say, with complete authenticity it is finished so thank you for the journey Amen. well good morning friends and uh, yeah it's amazing that you are all here this morning I hope you found a place to park I'm sure it was not easy but I'm glad you're here and uh, we couldn't expect winter to give up quite so easily so here it is to remind us that it's still around I just want to welcome my brother Ron, who is here this morning. Ron was uh, a part of the original group of uh, people that uh, that had a dream for this uh, ministry a number of years ago, and then he left to be in other parts of the world and has come back today and hasn't been here for two and a half, three years, so there are some changes (laughs) that you have seen. I love to to walk through cemeteries. (laughs) Does that sound a little strange? I love to read the commentary on the gravestones and uh, just try to imagine what was like for that person who had died when our youngest was married on the big island of Hawaii. After the wedding uh, we relaxed and kind of just cooled off a little bit and about I think about eight of us rented motorcycles and toured one section of the island for that day. John and Janelle, you were part of that, you recall. We stopped at a a scenic old church and walked through the cemetery. I believe it was an Episcopalian church. How fascinating to read the inscriptions on the tombstones and to contemplate what life was like for some who lived on the Big Island in the early 1800s, perhaps the late 1700s. Can you imagine someone placing your tombstone in a cemetery before you were even born? <laughs> Wouldn't that be an interesting scenario? Could you even fathom looking at someone's tombstone and seeing a little etching that described their life in Yet they'd never been born yet. Can you imagine having your obituary written before you were born? How would they even know my name? How would they know what to write? Since I haven't yet lived. Pastor Ken, where did you ever get such an idea? Are you feeling well this morning? Yes, very well. And I got it from the scripture. I'm talking about the life of our Savior. Do you know that his obituary appeared eight centuries before he was born? What did it say? If he hadn't lived, what could you say about him? It said there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. It said that there was nothing to attract us to him. The obituary said that he was despised and rejected. It said that he, there was nothing to attract us to him. The obituary declared that he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with deepest grief. It says we turned our backs on him and looked the other way, that he was despised and We did not care. That's how his obituary reads. It reads, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. But his obituary reads, yet the Lord laid on him The sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. His life was cut short in midstream. He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. What an obituary! And how descriptive of Jesus Christ, 800 years before he was born. Prophesied by Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. Just look at the etchings that would be on his tombstone. Grief. Sorrow. A man of afflicted, affliction. Affliction. A man who was pierced and scourged and crushed and silent. And you know what I thought interesting? You know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, could have read the obituary of her son before he was born. Or when he was just a baby. She, she would have read his obituary. And don't you know that Jesus knew Isaiah 53 very well as he was born into this world and he grew up as a young man. He knew his life mission. He had read his own obituary. He was fully aware of his life purpose. And despite the agony awaiting him, was absolutely true to his reason for coming to this world. We might say, well, he died at 33 years of age, a premature death, just getting started in his career, too young. But oh no, a life fully lived because it was the mission to which he was called. He never skirted the mission, even though it was hard. Gethsemane, how hard it was. But he did not push aside the cup of suffering. And then in the closing moments of his life on this earth, he calls out in Aramaic, or perhaps in Greek, teletestia, finished, finished, it is finished, telestai. Sometimes I get those syllables mixed up. So would you walk with me this morning, Uh, a steady, brisk walk through John 19, uh, verses 16 to 30. And our first step is, number one, he was finishing his work when he suffered for us. He was finishing his work when he suffered for us. Some of you, I'm sure, have uh, witnessed some horrible things in life. I'm sure if I was to have you raise your hands this morning that if you've ever come across upon a, a horrific car accident you have some memories in your mind to this day. If you've been in the war, you may have seen things that are hard to remove from your mind. My dear German friends took me on a tour of the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin a number of summers ago. And after leaving the memorial, I I noticed that Carmen was in emotional turmoil after the tour. It was just too much. Too much reflection. Too much carrying all of that pain and reflecting on the history of, of their country. And We looked at scenes that human eyes should never have to see The atrocities committed by ISIS are equally appalling. Too much to bear. Too harsh for human eyes. But horrible as some of these things that we may have had to witness, it is still yet another step to consider the immensity of of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Verse 16 says that Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. This morning, as we stand looking up at the cross, it's not a pretty picture. But if we dare to look, we will leave all the more grateful for what he's done. I know, we understand the most significant part of the cross is the spiritual aspect that he was bearing our sins that he was taking our sins upon him we understand that but there is something that happens in the human heart when you stop to think about the physical and what it meant to be nailed to a cross and left to die in agony i warn you that it is neither pleasant nor entertaining to gaze upon the cross of our Savior. But long enough have we kept things sparkling clean and polished and r- removed from our heart. Long enough have we poured the hydrogen peroxide over our minds and our hearts to keep us from, from becoming infected and keep us from feeling what happened. So, verse 16 says They took him away, they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place called place of the skull in Hebrew Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, change it from the king of the Jews to, he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was a seamless uh, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. We have no idea of how horrible crucifixion really was since we've never seen it in our generation or for many, many, many generations we have not seen Crucifixion. The Persians were the first to come up with it because they were looking for the worst kind of suffering anyone could imagine. And so they went through a battery of experiments of terrible ways to put people to death like stoning and drowning and boiling in oil and spearing and a host of other experiments but they all brought on death too quickly. There was not enough pain. So they came up with the idea of crucifixion. They invented it. The Romans had adopted it from the Persians because they liked the fact that it was so painful, that it was a slow death, that it was a humiliating death, that the victim was stripped naked and exposed to the elements. And it was a public death. It fit all of their criteria of being gruesome. You only have to imagine that this is your father being crucified. And then it becomes horribly real. Or your son. Or your brother. Or your husband. And then you get the picture. You feel the intensity of that horrible, horrible suffering. But even before the crucifixion, we know that Jesus suffered. That he was scourged, that he was whipped, just like his obituary said. And then there was the humiliation. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 27, describes in detail what happened. That the Roman soldiers stripped him and Put a scarlet robe on him, remember? And the reading I've done suggests that this is not a long robe, but rather perhaps a soldier's robe, or more specifically a tunic, or, or maybe it would be called a cape that would have covered his shoulders. So they were making fun. He was standing in front of them naked, and they put a cape on his shoulders. And they said, after all, a, a king needs a robe, doesn't he? Ha, 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 ha. And of course he needs a crown. So they put on his head a crown of woven thorns. They grow wild in that area. So they gathered thorns. They twisted them into a crown. And they jammed it down on his head. They they are about three to five inches long, these thorns. And they said, here's uh, the crown for the king of the day. Ha, ha, ha. Here you are, Mr. King. Oh! And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. After all, a king, if he's going to rule, needs a scepter, doesn't he? And they saluted him. Hail, king of the Jews! They spit on him. They grabbed that reed stick and they hit him on the head over and over again. He was finishing his work when he suffered for us. It says he carried his cross by himself. Probably this means the cross beam. Typically the vertical part of the cross was already in the ground and used over and over again. But he carried the cross beam, probably 75 to 125 pounds. It was placed across his neck, on his shoulders. Can you imagine the pain of the cross on his back when his back has been torn to pieces by whipping And then they nailed him to a cross between two other men, two other criminals. And as was the custom, they put a little placard, a piece of wood, about two feet long and about a foot wide, and they tied it around his neck. And then perhaps they later attached it to the cross. And the sign read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And because this was probably a very cosmopolitan area, and maybe there was a road going by where the traffic... Was, was, was coming and going. The sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so everyone could read it. That disturbed the Jewish leaders and they wanted Pilate to change the, the sign to read. He said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate is back in his anti-Semitic mood again. And he says, what I've written, I've written. I'm not conceding any more to you. But Pilate has already made the concession that will haunt him for the rest of his life. I I never cease to marvel that the psalmist wrote about this 10 centuries before our Savior's death. And David had no idea about crucifixion at that time. If you're following your notes, Psalm 22 is a description of the crucifixion. Psalm 22 is a description of the crucifixion. It hadn't yet been devised, but here is David and he's writing about it. Psalm 22 recording these words, my life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Oh, That's what happens on the cross. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. Listen to this. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Isn't that astounding? He was finishing his work when he suffered for us. His work was written about centuries before. The prophecies are amazing. And in the fullness of time, our Savior came and he gave his life on that old rugged cross for us. In the process of becoming our sacrifice for sins, he suffered greatly. Charles Wesley wrote in his wonderful old hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt of all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my King. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? I hope you know this one who suffered for you. I hope you know him. One day we will all see him. We'll see his hands and his feet and his side that were scarred. I hope you can say, I know this one who died for my sins, who took my guilt and shame upon himself, He was finishing his work when he suffered for us. Second, he was finishing his work when he cared for his mother. Yeah, that was also part of his work. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here's your son. And he said to his disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. We're constantly in the planning stages for the final years of our lives. The problem is we never know with any certainty when the final stages of our life is. But we're wise to take the necessary steps to be ahead of the game and to be preparing it's wise to think of your financial planning. It's wise to think of whether you have a, a will or not. And many people say, Oh, a will. I, I, I've been meaning to do that. I've been meaning to do that. I keep thinking about it. But I never quite get it done. I am that voice again today to remind you. You think about your children and how they would be cared for. That is only wise. Not meant to be scary but to be wise in your planning. We're we're constantly thinking of our aging parents and helping them toward their final years. My wife will probably say amen to that this morning, having spent the whole week by the bedside of her mom. Tradition tells us that Mary lived about 12 years longer after the death of Jesus. Joseph had already died years earlier, so she was a widow. She lived with the disciple John for the remaining years of her life. Now, these words seem very, very simple. Mother, here's John, your new son. John, here's Mary, your new mother. Sounds pretty simple, but it has profound implications when you understand the meaning behind it. It shows us the heart of God. God's compassion, God's tenderness, God's love. God's care and concern for your pain as well as everyone else's. God is thinking about you. God is caring for you. How honoring of Jesus, even in the midst of all his suffering. His eyes lock with the eyes of his mother. John's mother is there also. John's mother and Jesus' mother are sisters. And Jesus honors his mother. The Bible says to honor our father and mother. That's the fifth commandment. You say, well, you don't know my mom and dad. No, perhaps not. But it doesn't matter what they've done, whether they were good parents or bad parents or indifferent parents or maybe you never even knew them. They were absentee parents. Why did God choose your parents to be your parents? Well, because they had just the right DNA to create you. And God was more interested in their DNA to create you than he was their parenting skills. Now, no one denies that it would have been a lot easier if some of our parents would have got it a little better. But still the commandment to love your father and mother even if you get frustrated. Jesus has nothing to give his mother. He has no inheritance. So that's not on the the docket. He has no home to leave her. He's homeless. He doesn't even have any clothes because the Romans are gambling at the foot of the cross over the only set of clothes he has. So what does he do? Better than giving her things, he gives her the greatest thing, the best gift, and that is the gift of care. And he takes the person he trusts the most, and he takes the woman he loves the most, his mother, and he says, you take care of her, and you take care of him. This is your new son. This is your new mother. What a gift of caring. I guess what really impresses me about these verses is the ability to minister when in pain. Isn't that remarkable? I'm afraid I want to curl up in my pain, shut the world out. But Jesus is in excruciating pain. In fact, He's in His dying moments. But is He all focused on Himself? No. He's looking around to see anybody else in pain. And he sees his mother. He sees her in pain. He sees his best friend, John. He's in pain. I can't imagine how difficult it was for Mary and John to be up close so front, so, uh, so, so closely up front and to watch Jesus go through all of this. But the fact that he could speak to them and care for them in his greatest hour of need just simply seems overwhelming to me. He was finishing his work when he cared for his mother. Thirdly, he was finishing his work when he declared his mission was now complete. Verse 28, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. May I remind you of the 28th verse once again. It's an awesome verse. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. Every, this is amazing, every detail of his ministry has been the fulfillment of scripture. He's got it all covered, even his cry, I'm thirsty. People ask, you know, why these words, I thirst, why are they so significant among the seven last words that he spoke from the cross? And the answer is that it shows that he was fully human. Human. We should never think that, well, this was different for Jesus because he was the son of God, and so yes, it was crucifixion, but remember who he is. He's God, so things are a little different. Some people think he was half God and half human. No, that's not it at all. Jesus was not 50% God and 50% human. He he was not a hybrid. He was 100% God and he he was 100% human. So he was fully human And he could fully experience the pain of life and the pain of suffering and all of that. It's just as important to say that Jesus was God and equally to say that Jesus was human. They're both important because he was both. And so he was human and he was experiencing what happens to the body, to all of us, when the body is not hydrated. Google helped me understand that 50 to 65% of the human body is composed of water. Did you know we have about 10 gallons of water in us, or 10 or 12 gallons of water? Now the way that comes home to me is I remember being on the farm with feeding the animals and we had two 5-gallon buckets of water that we would carry out to the animals. And imagine those, a couple of those inside of me. I'm half Water. of the human body is composed of water. And when our reservoir gets depleted, when we get dehydrated, we get into trouble. We have to keep drinking water so that our system works right. We know when we're dehydrated, we get muscle cramps. We get headaches. It's the number one cause of fatigue in people, not enough water. Our brain shuts down without water. Hmm. Maybe that's why some of you went to sleep a little bit ago here. Ushers, bring the water, bring the water. you say, well, it is pretty dry in here, so I understand. Can you imagine the pain that Jesus endured because of thirst? Scientists tell us that thirst is the most agonizing of all pain, that every cell in the body cries out for relief. And the pain gets worse and worse as time goes by. And Jesus bore this incredible pain, kind of like it's the silent pain. You don't see this. We don't talk about this. But it's the silent pain. You see the nails in his hands and you see the the spear and you, you, you understand the physical torture that he went through. But the thirst, because of his broken, dehydrated body, was screaming out for water but he utters no complaint. What a Savior. What a Savior. Why is it so important to say that Jesus was human? Well, it was particularly important back in the day because there was a group of people in John's day called Docetus who were suggesting that Jesus was God but he wasn't a human being. He appeared like a human being, but he wasn't. And John is reminding us, no, he was human. He was completely human, and he was completely God. And it's evidence to get on the cross. Now, we don't have exactly docetism today as a a, uh, false teaching. But if you think about Islam, you can understand the prevalence of their teaching today. The Koran teaches that God would never become a human being because God would never die on a cross for us. They do not believe that God would ever go through that kind of humiliation. In fact, the Koran teaches that the disciples stole Jesus away after he was arrested and they put someone else in his place on the cross. And the person they thought they were crucifying as Jesus just looked like Jesus, but he wasn't. And because they don't believe that God would ever die on a cross himself in human form. So the words that Jesus uttered were hugely significant for all time. Jesus was human. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture he said, I am thirsty. And verse 30 says, when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. He said, it is finished. In some accounts, it says, he cried with a loud voice. And I would expect him being so dehydrated that this would be hard to really raise his voice. Very emphatic, it is finished. It is finished. It's such a significant word. And Jesus was so empowered and triumphant to be able to say it, to tell telestai us, telestai. It is finished. The bridge has been built between God and humanity. It's finished. The bridge is built. It will forever bear the weight of all who come to God. Yeah, I'm sure you were reading this week of the new bridge being constructed on Road and 102nd Avenue. The strangest of all things, those four girders were bent. All four of them. Of course, that bridge is not safe right now. It will be. But the bridge that Jesus built will stand the test of time now and through all eternity. We were separated from God. Our sin kept us at a distance. But Jesus said, I love you. My Father loves you. And I have come to pay the penalty of sin. I've come to give you new life. I've come to give you forgiveness and a new start and a, and a clean slate. What I have done on the cross has finished the journey. Jesus didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it's finished. Big difference. Those three simple words, it's finished. One word in Greek, to telestai Those words are the most important words ever uttered. In history, there's no more important words than those. Because if it isn't finished, we're all in deep trouble. Because if it isn't finished, we're hopeless. If it isn't finished, we're doomed. Because we can't do it for ourselves, we can't build that bridge ourselves. But He built the bridge, and He satisfied the justice and the law of God. It's finished. Jesus paid my penalty for everything I've ever done wrong. It's finished. It's finished. What a journey for our Lord. In these concluding hours on the cross, he was finishing the work when he suffered for us. He was finishing the work when he cared for his mother. He was finishing the work when he declared his mission was now complete. So friends, we no longer have to do. We don't have to perform for God. We don't have to try to measure up because we never will. We don't have to try to be good enough to build the bridge ourselves because no matter what bridge you build, it will never, never bear your weight. It will not be sufficient. We could never be good enough. We could never get to the finish line on our own. It's, it's no longer what we have to do. Because it's all been done. There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said it's finished. So give him your heart. Give him your life. Allow him to forgive. Allow him to start something new in your life. If you've never received Christ, this is your moment. What do you do? Nothing. You relax and you trust and you recognize that it is by grace through faith that I don't have to strive. So perhaps this morning, if you've never prayed this prayer, that you just bow with me for a moment and let this be the prayer that comes from your heart out of a deep commitment to say, yes, Lord, thank you for all that you've done for me. Would you pray with me? Jesus Christ, thank you that you've done everything that I need to be saved. You've done everything I need to be forgiven. You've done everything I need to get to heaven. You've done everything I need to be free from things that mess up my life. Thank you for doing it all. And thank you that it is finished And now I just want to trust you. I want to believe in you. I want to relax in you. I want to trust you to do what only you could do to save me. And so I'm saying it today. I need you. Please forgive my past, my sins. Please be welcome in my life and take control of my life. And I will commit my heart to you until the last breath. In Jesus' name, amen. It's an awesome new beginning. It's an awesome new beginning. It's the first step. Maybe for you, for some of you, it's a step of assurance uh, today. Receive his assurance today. Receive his assurance. And uh, if you need someone to pray with you, come after the service and let us know. If you're just getting on that bridge we'd be so happy to pray with you god bless you and encourage you in your new journey lord we just love you thank you this morning thank you for john 19 thank you for all that you're doing we thank you for your words that it is finished and lord at this particular season of the year what a joy to be reminded of all that you've done in jesus name amen